Welcome to Women in Charge, a podcast about women who are in charge of things and the things they are in charge of. This week, I'm speaking to Aijen Pu, director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, an organization advocating for the rights of domestic workers, co-director of Caring Across Generations, a coalition of advocacy groups focused on elder care, and a MacArthur genius. Today, we talk about how to build an advocacy organization, the practical challenges of representing a diverse group of women, and why visibility is such an important part of leadership. Thanks so much for being here, Aijen. Thanks for having me. So what are you in charge of? I'm in charge of an organization that represents the nation's two million domestic workers, so the nannies, the housekeepers, and the caregivers of the country. And we work to make sure that um, this workforce has protections, has access to training, has um, a platform to build power and to shape the policies that affect their lives. What is the relationship between the two organizations? The National Domestic Workers Alliance and Caring Across Generations? Yeah. Caring Across Generations is a campaign that the National Domestic Workers Alliance helped to start to bring together all the people who have a stake in a more caring economy. So whether you're a family caregiver or you're somebody who needs care, like you have a disability and you need support, or you're an older person, it's basically all of us because we're all going to need care (laughs) or provide it at some point. And it's about bringing all of us together to design policy solutions that make care much more affordable and accessible and to make care jobs really good jobs. So tell me about the genesis of NDWA. Well, domestic workers have been organizing in this country for many generations. um, And the most recent generation that I'm a part of started in the 90s in immigrant communities around the country. A lot of immigrant women do domestic work. And there were cases of abuse that were pretty rampant in the community. And organizations decided to try to work locally to improve working conditions, help workers who had been abused to find some kind of recourse. And over the course of the last 30 years, that work has grown and evolved. And in 2007, we all came together from cities around the country to say, we need a national voice and an organization that can really highlight the needs, the dreams, the struggles of this workforce and and design solutions. How were you, like, how did you become attached to this cause? You know, um, when I was in school, I, when I was in college in New York City, I was volunteering at a domestic violence shelter for Asian immigrant women. And um, I worked the hotline at night, and women would call the hotline and talk about the abuse that they survived, but also about all the struggles that they had in the workplace and the struggle of working really hard and still not being able to make ends meet and how that just limited your possibility in life and also for your children and also your safety as a survivor of violence. And so I just started to realize that until women can actually earn a living wage, a a life-sustaining wage um, doing the work that they do, they're always going to be Um, limited in terms of realizing their full potential and even safety, basic safety. So I started asking the question, why, if people are working, can't they pay the bills? Why can't they take care of their kids and and be self-sufficient? And it just, the more I looked at it, the more I realized that a lot of the jobs that are available to immigrant women, 
and women of color are poverty wage jobs. And it struck me that if we could change anything, that that seemed like a really important thing to try to address. How much of the work is um, sort of educating domestic workers about their rights or their or 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 what you can you know kind of pr- help them uh, accomplish? And how much is educate? I'm sure a lot of is, is policy based, but how much is educating families like employers? You know, this is an all hands on. It's like it's really going to take a village to transform the norms and the culture of this work in our country. I mean, if you think about it, most of us, a lot of people don't think about, when they think about work, they certainly don't picture a nanny or a house cleaner, right? It's And we don't even refer to it as work. We call it help, right? And so many other things, anything but work. (laughs) And it's because it's associated with work that women have historically done, right? The caring and the cleaning. And as a profession, it's always been associated with women of marginalized social status, whether it's black women who were some of the first domestic workers in the United States who were enslaved as domestic workers or immigrant women who do it in disproportionate numbers today. And if we're going to try to change the culture that devalues the work and the people who do it, it's going to take educating everyone and all of us embodying a different kind of set of norms and and beliefs about this work. And it's interesting because I think inherently the domestic workers who do this work know its value. They know that without them, the people that they work for couldn't go out and do what they do in the yeah. world every single day. It's like it's it's so obvious and basic. And so there is this disconnect for them between what they know to be the value of this work and the contributions they make to families and the way we as society value it and protect it. So there's a way in which they already have a consciousness about that. They probably don't have a consciousness about what then we do about it. And that's our work as an organization, as a movement. A lot of employers, on the other hand, are so interesting because it's so different from any other industry. This is an industry where you could go into any neighborhood and not know which homes are also workplaces, right? There's no sign that says somebody works here, (laughs) you know? And it's one person per workplace. And, you know, a lot of people, when they think about, um, you know, the rights of workers, they think about unions and collective bargaining and there's no collective, there's no one to bargain with, there's no other employees, there's, you know, no water cooler, no HR department, like, what do you do? And a lot of that is also reflected in the awareness of employers, like most employers are just like you and me, where we go to work some, you know, for somebody else every day, we don't think of ourselves as employers, we think of ourselves as needing a service. And so I think there's a lot of awareness and kind of cultural norm shifting and narrative shifting that needs to happen among all of us to really start to recognize, okay, this is a profession and a huge part of the workforce of the future because if you think about it, these are jobs that will never be outsourced, right? They won't be automated. They've been trying to build a robot in L.A. to fold a towel for 11 years and have not yet been successful. So I think that that we these are jobs that are here to stay for a good bit and we have this opportunity to make them really good jobs that you can take pride in and it benefits everyone 
the workers, their families, but also the people they support to have a stable and secure professional workforce who can ensure that the things that are most precious to you are in good care. Totally game-changing to have that all be secured. Yeah. Uh, Every so often there's like a nightmare story in the news, like it uh, seems, you know, extremely severe and it rises to the level of being a news story. That's probably not the norm. The norm is kind of like everyday mistreatment. And I'm sure by lots of like good liberal parents like me, you know, that um, maybe just aren't either aren't aware or aren't um, thinking about it in the terms that you're thinking about it. What are like kind of the most common um, types of mistreatment? Well, you know, there's a real like it's just a real spectrum here. There's a whole range. I mean, there's some employment relationships that are so healthy and positive and professional and awesome. And we have tons of stories about domestic workers who've been with a family for several generations. And the connection and mutual support there is just really, um, it's so inspiring and powerful. And then there is the whole other end of the spectrum where we see cases of human trafficking, sexual violence, non-payment of wages. One of the first cases I worked on was a young woman who was brought here at, to be a live-in nanny at the age of 15, and she was not paid for 15 years. You know, I mean, there's like, but then there's everything in between. And I think what's pervasive is because we're culturally not predisposed to really valuing or recognizing the professionalism of this work, that what we have is a kind of persistent and pervasive low wage and lack of access to any kind of job security, any kind of consistency of responsibilities or expectations, um, lack of access to a safety net or benefits which we're actually changing because we've just launched a new benefits platform for domestic workers. Wait, tell me what that means. Oh, it means for the first time, historically domestic workers have never had access to benefits. And we've created a benefits platform that allows for domestic workers with many different clients to all contribute to on a prorated basis access to benefits for the domestic worker. And it's totally game-changing. I mean, and there are five different benefits that you can get. One of them is paid time off, which most domestic workers can't afford. And, you know, we're hearing stories about women who have taken their first day off in 10 years, 15 years, because of this benefits platform. So we're super excited about it. It's called Alia, and you can find out about it at myalia.org. Early on, um, the woman who uh, worked for our family and helped raise our kids, um, a few years after she started working for us, she went to Albany to advocate for the uh, Domestic Workers' Bill of Rights. Yeah, she's awesome. Uh, but I remember her saying, like, this is the first time I've ever done anything like this. She was nervous. She hadn't, you know, she had just hadn't been an activist. Um, how do you identify the worker leaders and train them? Yeah, well, there's definitely a lot of preparation that goes on. Every meeting is a part of the preparation. You know, I think there's so many reasons to be kind of fearful and concerned, but when you're in a group and you're around women who've done it before and they can share their experiences and other women who are speaking their truths and courage is contagious. And what we found is that there's no better inspiration and motivation than seeing your peers really take steps forward and 
I mean, there's a, I think there was some book written about risk, and one thing that, that the author said that really resonated with me and what I see among workers who are taking risks all the time is that the thing about risk is that you never have to take them alone. Yeah. And I think that what we do as an organization is really create the context for people to take the right risks in the right way. And um, and so, yeah, I think m to us, anyone and everyone could be an activist, and that could mean any number of things. And we really try to create the context for people to do things they feel comfortable with and to challenge themselves to do the next thing and the next thing and to actually be able to see the impact of the actions and the risks that they take. And the New York Domestic Worker Bill of Rights that you're referring to is the first in the country. And none of us really knew that it would ever pass or, that, you know, that we would be successful or what we would win. And what did you win? We ended up winning paid days off, three days paid leave per year, protection from discrimination and harassment, which is huge, um, and um, days of rest, and um, inclusion in other basic labor laws like workers' compensation. As has been very visible recently because of the Women's March, but I'm sure you already knew, having a large organization that represents all different kinds of interests can be complicated. People with different backgrounds and uh, different needs and geographically, you know, how do you, what, are, what have been some of the challenges there? Well, we've really intentionally built our organization to try to experiment with how to be an authentically multiracial, multicultural organization. And so um, we've really invested in the things that help us communicate across language, culture, experience. What are some of those things? So having a really big line item in my budget every year for interpretation and making sure that every meeting we have, there's simultaneous interpretation in all the languages that are necessary, which is usually between four and seven, and making sure that there's no one language that's central, right, that everybody feels like they can engage in the conversation, making sure that a lot of small group work happens so that there's enough opportunity for everyone, if they choose, to really participate, have their voices heard in their own native language on their terms. Um, we also do a lot of cultural events, like every one of our big uh, conferences, there's a talent night and almost always the talent night is showcasing different cultural um, songs and dances and a it's a celebration of our specificity and our unity at the same time. And I think that's really important to be able to honor, right, the differences that make us, that help us bring our unique contributions to the table while in the context of moving forward towards common goals together. And there's an art and a science to doing that well. I don't think anybody's totally figured it out. That's part of the big messy project of this American democracy. <laughs> um, but I find that women are really good at kind of, you know, rolling with it and really trying to figure it out. And in my organization, it's been one of the most powerful experiences is watching people who come from different ends of the earth find each other and find their power in each other. So let's go back a little bit. How do you start an organization? <laughs> um, it takes um, 
to me, you know, my experience has been a group of women with common goals and shared values set up some agreements and make a plan uh, for uh, how they want to achieve their goals together. And, you know, I think form follows function. So um, it depends on what the goal is. Um, and you structure your organization, I think, really around the goal while paying attention to the kind of organizational culture that you want to set. And um, so it's both eyes on the prize in terms of what you're trying to accomplish in the world outside, you know, the impact you're trying to have, and also making sure that the culture that you create inside your organization also reflects your values. In terms of like building infrastructure, do you have um, office space? Mm-hmm. Okay. So in terms of building infrastructure and fundraising and like the kind of operational parts of running a, what is, you know, a, well, it's not a business, but it's a large scale operation. Um, which parts of that do you touch? I mostly do fundraising and strategy. Um, I also do a lot of diplomacy, right, external relations. Um, and and I think about, yeah, what kind of partnerships can help us realize our goals. What have you learned over the years in dealing with politicians? Or what have you learned about politicians? You know, I think with anyone who has power that um, – they're all still, at the end of the day, human beings. And part of our job as organizers uh, is to create the context for that person to show up for your organization or your constituency or your goals in a way that aligns with theirs. And so the art of organizing is really about creating the context for that person to show up in the way that you need. Um, and sometimes that requires some pressure. Sometimes it requires a different kind of incentive. Sometimes it requires lots of steps. Um, at the end of the day, though, I do think that a lot of our elected officials, just like people, all kinds of people, are people who are potential co-conspirators. You know, I see everybody as a partner, potentially a partner. And uh, we have a saying in our movement that uh, in a campaign for human dignity, there's no such thing as an unlikely ally. That if we treat people as, and maybe this is because I'm an organizer, but I really do believe that it's all about building relationships and that the, the ability to build and leverage power comes down to how strong the relationships are at the center of that power. So you're an organizer at heart, it sounds like, but you're also a bit of a celebrity now. <laughs> you are. Not at all. <laughs> uh, how important do you think it is for this organization that is representing like sort of the most invisible women to have a very visible leader? Well, you can't value what you can't see. And so I think for us, especially because the work is almost defined by its invisibility, right, hidden behind closed doors and taken for granted in every way imaginable, yeah that its visibility has always been really, really important um, to us and really changing the narrative, really sh demonstrating the value of this work. The fact that we, you know, our slogan is the work that makes all of their work possible because it's so easy to erase this whole layer of work that goes in to caring for families. And, um, and so 
just making that visible feels like such a fundamental part of our task in our culture. Do you ever think about why, like why it's been so hard to, I mean, you said they've been organizing, you know, domestic workers have been organizing for years. Lots of workers have been, you know, organizing and face lots of different challenges. But I mean, you've accomplished a lot. But why in particular this group has it been so difficult to to get people to see them? You know, I think that at the end of the day, our culture and our economy uh, really reflect um, a, a hierarchy of um of how we value people in society. So I think that we have a society that values the lives and contributions of men over women, of white people over people of color. And domestic workers sit like it's such a crazy place that they have in our world where they're both in the center of our most intimate emotional lives and at the bottom of every hierarchy. Right, as immigrant women, women of color, women who do invisible work that's associated with women. You know, it's just like you couldn't get a more bottom of the hierarchy and yet so central. And so I just think that there's, it's a reflection of all the ways in which our society is structured by norms that devalue certain categories of people or see them as less than, which is why. This kind of basic notion that all work is dignified work and every human has value and potential is so central to us because we can't – reinforcing that hierarchy of human value is – will never help us, you know, as as a workforce that's kind of at the bottom of it. So when you started, what were the couple of goals that you laid out with your co-conspirators? We wanted – respect, right? That That is the, just recognition that this is really important work. Um, and basic protections, standards, protections, um, a way that workers could count on, um, a set of rights that workers could count on as they went off to work and are in these isolated conditions. At least they would know that there was some set of laws that could protect them. Um I think that those were the two key things. And, you know, laws don't deliver respect, right? That's a, it's a cultural, so it's an ongoing cultural project of that level of dignity and honor for this work. Um, But laws are a tool to help you have a conversation in the culture about what it'll take to get there. And so the two goals were really connected for us. And are those still the two main goals? I would add that I do believe that domestic workers are in the center of so much change that's happening in our world. If you think about the racial demographic change and the generational demographic change where people are living longer than ever before and the boomers are aging, we're about to have this huge older population in America that we're not prepared for domestic workers are going to have to be a huge part of the solution to our elder care crisis that's coming, that's unfolding right before our eyes. Um, There were, it's more than 90% women, right, who are more than half of the electorate, more than half of all college graduates. Like, so I think that this workforce, while having been on the margins of society for so long, is actually right at the center of 
all of these major trends that are shaping our future. So I would say that we have this goal of ensuring that this workforce is actually in a position to shape the future because we believe that that will not only benefit this workforce but really democratize and strengthen opportunity for everyone in the future. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the management part of your job. How many people report to you and what are their roles? I think we have about 70 staff overall at the National Domestic Workers Alliance and uh, seven people report to me directly. Um, And I have an amazing team. I mean, this is the thing that I think... um, is really defining of this organization is like there's so many strong leaders at every level of the organization and there's no way we could do what we do without that. And my management ethic is to hire women who are smarter than me and more competent than me in every vector of our work. And it's the only way. Like I learned so much from my um, team of directors about you know, electoral organizing or about innovation work in the private sector, about tech, like there's no way that we could accumulate the expertise we need to realize our goals for domestic workers if we didn't have these amazing women leaders who are kind of like ahead of their time in their own right and in their own disciplines shaping our strategies. And together we help each other see what we can't see on our own and just constantly expand our field of vision so that we can then see the opportunities for domestic workers to be uplifted and have more power. Because it's so large and spread out, um, and again, representing so many people, are there things that you guys have decided to do that actually you didn't want to do? (laughs) You personally? Mm, I don't think any of us loves the amount of travel we have to do. I mean, there's some things that you just have to show up and be in person for. And I think that that's totally right. Like, I don't ever want to lose that in-person, personal, emotional connection that can be built and trust that can be built. And um, and it's a lot to try to do that in a vast country like ours. Um, so the travel can be can be tough. So everybody has their own travel tips, you know, little things that they do to help them, you know, manage the travel in their own ways. And I have mine too. So obviously you spend all day thinking about workplace health and safety. Uh, How do you think about that in your own workplace? Well, we try as best we can to really reflect the values that we're projecting out in the world. And so We have, I'd say, a really strong benefits program. And, um, you know, we do also really believe in high impact, high output. I mean, we feel responsible for, you know, the conditions of more than 2 million domestic workers around the country. Like, there's a lot to do. Well, yeah, I mean, working for a nonprofit is notoriously, like, a very difficult job. You have to work very hard. There are so many obstacles. It's not often a ton of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's itself a hard a hard industry. <laughs> right, totally. And, you know, I think in this moment in history and in our politics, we have a lot to do to move our goals forward in terms of policy change at the state level and building things like our portable benefits platform that's proactive and 
offensive. And then we also have to respond to all the new crises, whether they're threats to our asylum program or what have you. And um, and so we've had to really be able to be agile as an organization and keep a sense of um, being kind of like a startup where we're constantly trying to reinvent ourselves so that we can stay really relevant and impactful in a really rapidly changing environment while still having the infrastructure to build the things that take longer to build, right, and the patience. So we have people in the organization working on different time horizons and with different paces of work. Everybody works really hard, though, so we actually shut down for a week in August and a week at the end of the year in addition to people's vacation to just acknowledge that we work at a really intense pace and um, we need to also rest and take care of ourselves along the way. Do any men work for the organization? We have two, I think, maybe three. I've mostly mostly worked in an organization that's all women and mostly women of color. Yeah. Do you communicate differently with men in your work than you do with women? I find that, you know, when we're interacting with the world around these issues, um, it's been a real learning curve. I think it's a little different now, maybe not a ton, but a little bit different. When we first started talking to lawmakers, the men in particular just could not wrap their heads around what we were talking about. They were like, what do you, is this domestic violence? Yeah. Like, what is that? You know, because even if they had a nanny or a house cleaner in their home, they probably weren't the ones managing that person. And so just um, the level of interaction that men have in general with this whole sphere of the care economy is, um, is something that has just been really interesting to to understand. Like they have not engaged. And that is actually something that is changing, especially with the elder boom, the growing older population in this country. More and more men are caring for their aging parents. And more and more millennial men are playing a different role in caregiving for their children. And so we're starting to see a, a real tide turning there in terms of men's engagement with this work and this kind of general field of life. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when I first started in the mid-90s, it was totally like I was speaking some foreign language and, you know, right. just not, there was no comprehension, but a lot of like telling us what was not possible. Yeah. So you founded the organization now more than a decade ago, and a lot has changed in this country, both in terms of Trump being elected and immigrant workers feeling less secure, but also there seems to be greater awareness, at least on the left, of how undervalued domestic work has been, I'm sure in large part due to your work. How have those shifts, some in my view very good and some very bad, impacted the goals and priorities? I think we're just in this moment where we really believe that we have to be incredibly bold in our goals and in our aspirations. There are these times in history when it feels like history moves a little faster. Technology is changing so much about how we relate to each other, how we eat and live and travel and everything and and work for sure. And And then politically, the country is a little bit just like on fire. What's up is down and what we want is our values of dignity, of opportunity, of humanity, of inclusion, of 
of justice to be at the center of how we come out of this moment of transformation. We're just like, let's go. Let's do this. And women are on fire. Women are changing everything. And we are, we're a part of that. We want to be a part of that. And, and I think we are. So we have an election starting. <laughs> uh, are you identifying who you want to go after? Like, are there people that you're like, this person is open to these ideas and I'm going to invest time in this person? You know, I'm really excited to call them all up and be like, how do you feel about these ideas? Because yeah. <laughs> I don't yet know. Um, but what I do know is that from a value standpoint, there's so many candidates that I've seen so far that feel values aligned, like that feel like they could potentially get behind these policies and they might have even more other ideas that I could get excited about and learn from. So I'm actually feeling really positive right now about um, about where we are and the people who are stepping forward. I mean, I know that this is a country of like more than 300 million amazing individuals. And among those people, I am quite certain that we can elect an amazing and right individual to lead us forward into the future. So you sound like a very positive and hopeful person in a what for some people is a very dark time. How do you, and also so invested in Um, And what you do, how do you translate that to make sure that your staff um, is motivated, is, um, you know, is has the same goals and passions that you do? Well, we have this great um, we're very fortunate because the fact that we are in service to this incredible constituency of domestic workers. I mean, if you think about the group of women that we serve, it's like these women who spend more time caring than anybody else because they're caring for other families and then they go home and they care for their own. So it's like double the caring. And our job is to take care of them, right? That's what we do. And it is such humbling perspective all the time. It just really, the second you interact with some of our members and you hear their stories, it's just so humbling because they care and care and care aren't recognized, aren't protected, and still have such a positive outlook about, okay, so we have to, what's next? Like, what do we do next? And when are we going to Albany? And when are we, because there's no choice but to figure out how we move forward, right? And so in that context, it feels like really horrible to complain about anything. Yeah, (laughs) You know, you just like puts everything right in perspective, which is really awesome. And then we are like a group of women who really, I think, have created an organizational culture where we do try to take care of each other. We're serious about the work and the impact, but we also do try to support each other's leadership and take care of each other and create a culture where people do feel cared for. So part of your job is managing some people and part of your job is managing up with a board that you report to. What does that look like? My board is excellent. My board is majority domestic workers who are elected from our membership and who have basically signed up to say, I want to lead, help lead this organization and work with the staff to make sure that we're doing as much as we can to make life better for the incredible women who do this work. And so they've signed up for something that's a pretty big responsibility. And, um, and so they really bring a lot of seriousness to the decisions that they make and the priorities that they set for the organization. And, um, 
it's a pretty it's a pretty awesome thing because it's people who are working full time as nannies and house cleaners and home care workers who sit down with me and the budget and approve it or not, ask questions, um, look at our growth plans, look at our priorities, help me set them, and help me navigate really hard decisions that we have to make. Um, but it's it's great. It, I think a lot of people have gotten experience leading on a board that they otherwise wouldn't have gotten and, um, and can imagine, I think, different roles and different um, leadership opportunities for themselves as a result. Um, you are not just a woman in charge, you're a minority woman in charge. Could a white man lead an organization like this? Um, I think it would be hard just because um, it's the industry is just overwhelmingly women and overwhelmingly um, or disproportionately women of color. Um, and the women who've signed up to work for the organization are women. So just from a kind of reflective leadership perspective, I think it would be hard. Um, but I don't actually think that any one identity of a person could can or can't do any one thing. Like I feel like it's all about the right person. And my perspective has always been I, I really would love one day for a domestic worker to be the executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Um, and I'm kind of holding this spot while I can still be of service. But if one day that is the right move and the board says that's what we want to do, I would really, really welcome it. Um, and I think it's like it all depends on what we need um, given our goals. And I think that I've always had the ethic of like, we need the best people to the domestic workers deserve the very best people in the country working for this movement and this organization. That said, we really want to be able to elevate and create a space for this. We want this organization to be a place where women of color, working class women, women who've had less access to opportunity can actually develop in their leadership and their capacity and their skills. And so I'm constantly kind of balancing those two things of like, how do we get the best people in the country and how do we create the best leadership pipeline for women of marginalized social status? Thank you so much. This has been really wonderful. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's episode of Women in Charge. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. That helps more people find us. And please send feedback on the show and suggestions for guests to womenincharge at slate.com. Thanks to producers Jessica Jupiter and Cleo Levin. Thank you to Gabe Roth, editorial director of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And thank you all for listening. Listening.